when we read the Christian scriptures, we believe that we're reading more than just an ancient text, but that it is the written word of God, and that God's word reads us, and that God can speak to us through his word. So with that in mind, I invite you to just prepare your hearts and minds just for a moment for the reading of God's word this evening, and Talia will come up and teach for us. From Matthew's Gospel and the Sermon on the Mount, these are the words of Christ. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Hi, everyone. It's great to thank you for the opportunity to get to preach. Very thankful for the opportunity to get to share and preach this evening. Um, as Chuck said, I am currently a grad student at Denver Seminary. And as I've been in grad school, I've been doing the grad student hustle. So working a few different jobs, making it work. And one of the jobs that I have the privilege of having is as a community coordinator and barista at Graceful Community Cafe down in Littleton. This cafe is unique in that it has a pay-what-you-can model, where anyone who walks through the doors is welcome to get a good, high-quality meal um, and a drink of their choice for partial or no cost. And we have some guests who are in a season in life where covering food costs is difficult and stressful, so we get to have them at our cafe pretty regularly. And these friends who come in consistently will often get to a place where they feel comfortable being there and know that we're glad to see them, glad to know how they're doing, and are glad to cover the meal for them. One of our guests, however, is distinct in the fact that he has never felt like he's gotten into that point of being comfortable to be present. He's often apologetic and acts consistently as if he's a burden to us. His actions, even though he is so sweet and kind, and this is just consistent from the time that he came in a few months ago for the first time, his actions and interactions with us have remained the same. They seem to reveal this belief, like I said, that he is a burden. And he seems to reinforce it each time he comes in and lives out this belief. Our actions, too, often reveal our beliefs, values, and thoughts. This can happen intentionally, like picking up the phone to call a friend, to show that you care about them and are thinking of them. And it can happen unintentionally, like our friend at Graceful, automatically acting as if he is a burden to us. But we aren't born knowing the best way to care for friends or believing we're a burden. Both positive and negative beliefs are subtly formed over time, and they invariably seep into our actions and how we interact with the world around us. And even if we say we do or don't believe or value something, our actions will often ultimately communicate the truth. For instance, saying I care about you and living out I care about you are two very different things. We learn how to give love over time. 
And saying I am not a burden and living out I am not a burden are also two very different things. We learn over time how to receive love well. So with this reality in mind, here's a point that I'm hoping to communicate to you today through our scripture. Living out biblical values and beliefs takes intentional, habitual practice. But thankfully, we do this practice in the context of Christ's perfect love. For the past several weeks, the discipleship groups here at NOVA have been going through a book called Having the Mind of Christ. The authors offer eight axioms, or lenses, that help reshape the way we see God, ourselves, and others. And as we've been reading a different chapter each week in our small groups, we've also been preaching on these different axioms as well. And we are currently in our final week of the sermon series reflecting on these axioms, these statements which we declare to be true. And they're often intuitive, I've noticed, or may seem obvious, such as God is love, so it's all about love. And another chapter was God cares about it all more than we do. But what struck me about these axioms is even though they may seem obvious and automatic to say, the way that I live doesn't quite always communicate the same confidence that I can communicate about them with my voice. The way that I live might communicate some hesitation and doubt in these and these things that we declare to be true. And the final chapter that we're on this week is titled, God Transforms Us Through Embodied Participation. So instead of simply declaring the other axioms, in this axiom, the authors suggest in their own words here, we can grow in our capacity to receive and give God's love, not merely by thinking or believing correctly, but rather by trusting Jesus in our bodies, taking concrete steps of faith, in our actual lives and relationships. And this idea of being able to grow in giving and receiving love is not something that two random guys who wrote a book are the first ones to come up with and suggest to us. In our passage this evening that we read together, we heard this from Jesus himself in his own words as he called his disciples to put his words into practice. So I'm going to read again for us the verses from Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus is saying it is not only wise to hear and listen to his words, but to put them into practice. In fact, the only difference between the two builders that we just read about is that one put into words, put into practice his words, and one did not. But what are these words that Jesus is referring to here? This description of the two builders is coming at the end of a teaching from Jesus that's often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. So these words is pointing back to the sermon or teaching that starts at the beginning of Matthew 5 and goes through the end of Matthew 7, which is where we have our passage today. And Jesus primarily is speaking to his disciples, to those who have decided to follow Christ and are now trying to figure out what that actually means, what that actually looks like. And in this sermon, Jesus offers his disciples foundational truths and radical realities to not just memorize, but to live out. And while we don't have time to unpack each and every section of the Sermon on the Mount, I heard the new Chosen episodes might do that for us. 
Apparently, they're really good. <laughs> but um, I just want to briefly look at um, some of the ideas that Jesus presents to his disciples in this passage. So starting at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 11, Jesus begins by elevating the mourning, the meek, the merciful, the persecuted, and the peacemakers. While the world may dismiss or mock these people, Jesus says that in his kingdom, these people are the greatest, not the least. And going on, verses 13 through 16 of chapter 5, Jesus emphasizes the way we live should be reflective of that kingdom. Our lives, actions, and words should be distinctly reflective of a God who uplifts the downcast, seeks peace and justice, and shows mercy. His comparison here is that as salt is salty and light is bright, so Christians should be Christ-like in their words and deeds, living out the value of his them and not of the world around us. And before we think we can either earn our way to righteousness through doing all the right things or ignore the commands of scripture because Jesus seemed maybe anti-religious or already did it all or is doing something new, in verses 17 through 20, he declares that he both fulfills the law, so the law does not dictate our salvation, and we also cannot ignore the law or ignore the call to practice our faith in tangible ways. And Jesus then, going on through the rest of chapter 5, unpacks specific laws, such as do not murder, do not commit adultery, and love your neighbor. These laws up to that point had been interpreted rather literally. So if you practice all these laws correctly, you are safe. But Jesus takes these commands to their fundamental depths. It is not enough to not do something, like do not murder, check, or to do the bare minimum of being nice to the, just the neighbors we like. Jesus wants the very heart of his people to be transformed. Instead of the actions and the call to actions and call to obeying the law, to just be a wall or a beam of the house of this belief system we're building, we're meant to live every aspect of our lives from a life-transforming foundation <coughs> of faith. While growing up in Turkey as a missionary kid, I attended Turkish school for much of elementary school. And it seemed that the biggest school that we were working to, biggest goal that we were working towards in Turkish school was this big test at the end of high school. And so even in second grade, I knew about this big test that was coming. And in third and fourth grade, we began taking practice tests. We had Saturday school just to practice for this big test that was 10 years away. It was very stressful. Um, I didn't have to go to Saturday school, though, thankfully. But, um, but it would it'd be like seeing a whole class of second and third graders here already stressing and practicing for the SAT or ACT. And so we learned really well how to memorize facts and regurgitate facts and put those back onto the exam, um, dates and names and things like that. But I wasn't necessarily taught how to apply history to the present day or language arts to thought processes or to reflect critically on social studies. We can sometimes get into that trap with our faith as well of knowing the facts and the do's and the don'ts of Christianity but we, as Christ followers, aren't meant to memorize and just regurgitate these facts. We're meant to live, this founda- live out from this foundation-shifting uh, foundation faith. So Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, begins by offering a new view of humanity in his kingdom. And from this foundational belief, we practice honoring, loving, serving, and uplifting others because God has called his creation worthy of these things. 
That belief should seep into our interactions as we practice what these words look like lived out, as we practice giving love. And if we continue going through the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6 largely focuses on how we are to view and hold practices in our private lives. Instead of doing things for human praise and approval, we are to align our private lives with these foundational words of Jesus as well. While putting some of Jesus' words into practice will naturally be more public and relational, such as um, making someone feel safe or protecting the vulnerable or speaking words of encouragement to someone, our practice of the words of Christ has to be more than public. And in this next section in chapter 6, he touches on how giving, fasting, and praying and stewardship can all be practices that... um, that should be coming from a Christ-centered, God-honoring foundation, reflective of our internal alignment with God's heart. So for instance, giving in private can be a practice of reflecting God's heart of faithfulness, generosity, and humility. Praying in private can be a practice of surrender and dependence on a God who says he is trustworthy. Fasting can be a practice of turning our attention to God in the midst of everything fighting for our attention because we declare he is worthy of our attention. And I would suggest that the reason Jesus spends time emphasizing the private and personal nature of some of these practices is precisely because he is concerned with our whole heart, whole life transformation. He's interested in reconstruction, reconstructing the entire foundation of our lives and helping us with his grace and mercy built up from there. He doesn't want performances or memorized answers to an exam that's coming in 12 years or automated action, but holistic practices that reflect and foster wholehearted faith. I recently got into the world of tennis through my sister. She has jumped into playing and watching tournaments and playing in tournaments herself. My engagement currently looks like following random players on Instagram. Um, And what I've noticed as I followed these incredible players is that we'll just see snippets of their personal workout sometimes. So, and you get a, you just get this tiniest snippet into the time and effort and commitment that they pour into this sport that they've essentially committed so much of their lives to. And Jesus essentially is challenging us towards the same kind of on-the-court, off-the-court commitment. Tennis players will repeat these tiny actions over and over again every day, regardless of whether someone is watching or not, because of their commitment. And as God reconstructs the foundation of our lives as his disciples, we are called to practice living out what our faith looks like in every area of our lives, both public and relational and personal, private, on-the-court, and off the court. And the remainder of chapter 6 points back to God. The treasure of life that we have in him and him alone, and the fatherly love that he has for us. We are his children, and he is our father who knows what we need. Do not be anxious, he declares. And while we have been focusing on practicing our faith from the foundation Christ offers, we cannot forget who Christ is in the midst of this. So I'm going to add two more verses here, just um, two verses after the passage that we just read, Matthew 7, verses 28 through 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The teachers of the religious law knew the law inside and out and could tell you easily the do's and don'ts of the faith. 
But knowing things with your head, as we've said, isn't quite the same as knowing them with your heart and your hands and your feet. Jesus spoke with authority because he always moved from a place of knowing the value of the person in front of him. He didn't have to learn how to love his enemies or value humanity or show how to show grace and compassion. He always moved from these things being the foundation from which he moved from. He is perfect in his practice of love. He is perfect in practicing his own words. And he is perfect, thankfully, in his knowledge of his children. I was at someone's home recently where um, a couple had an almost one-year-old. And they're right around that age where they're learning how to stand and walk, but can't quite do those things on their own yet. They're just crawling around, and it's very cute to watch. Um, and this may be obvious, but their parents, this child's parent was not disappointed in him. This child's parents was not disappointed by the fact that he couldn't stand by himself yet or walk by himself yet. In fact, they would actually stop and celebrate any time he got close to finally pulling himself up a little bit. And even though he never did quite manage to do that while we were there, these parents are celebrating their child learning, slowly practicing what walking and standing and moving around in this new world feels like. And in the context of his parents' love, this child is safe to try and safe to fail and safe to try again. And it is with the same kind of excitement and compassion that Jesus watches us, that our Father watches us. In all of his perfect power and authority, he looks on us and knows we are children, learning how to walk and how to move and how to stand in this new kingdom that we now call home. And he notices the struggle and the awkwardness and is patient and kind as we learn how to practice our faith, as we learn how to put his words into practice. And perhaps the other teachers of the law did not speak with the same authority because the information they took took in did not ultimately transform their hearts. And perhaps this didn't happen always because they did not feel the freedom to try and fail and try again till the reality of God's words seeped into their souls and out into their interactions and their practices. Being in an honor and shame society and being high-ranking religious leaders, the pressure was on. They were supposed to do it right. They were supposed to get it. They were supposed to have all the right answers for the exam. They had been studying the law their whole lives. And they had something to prove to others and to God and to themselves. But you and I have nothing to prove. We do not perfect our practice of faith in order to earn God's love or or in order to earn worth and value before him. But instead, we practice our faith from the context of Christ's perfect love. The same authority that people sensed as Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount is the same authority with which he has already declared you loved, forgiven, holy, and righteous. It's the same authority that inspired Paul to write in Romans 8, 39, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We practice our faith in the context of Christ's perfect love, where it is safe to try and safe to fail and safe to try again. I was working on a sermon earlier this year about the Good Samaritan, and I was at a coffee shop reflecting on God's heart for the outsider and care for the forgotten and and just in awe of this part of who who God is, period. 
And I head ho- began to head home after a while, and it was pouring rain at the time. And on that drive, I passed a woman who was in, um, seemed to be needing a sh- either a shirt or a sweater or a jacket or something. And I had a sweater in my uh, passenger seat, and it would have been such a good opportunity to practice living out my faith, to practice noticing people who might have an obvious need. But a small thought stopped me, and I said, oh, it's my favorite sweater. It's the one I wear all the time. And I kept driving. And after about a minute, I realized it was terrible application of practice what you preach. So I flipped to you and realized it was too late. The woman had already gone. Um, And instead of disowning me in that moment, God graciously met me with his mercy and also began stirring up conviction, conviction that would be, uh, be pouring into that foundation that he has asked us to live from. He has been and continues to be gracious and merciful, a kind father as I learn how to walk and move around in this world from this reconstructed foundation of faith. And he will continue to meet me and each of us as we work out and practice our faith. When we leave this room, we'll each be in different contexts with different people, different situations. And while the words of Christ may be the same to us, the the people and the outward practices may end up looking different. God also may be challenging each of us to a particular, to practice a particular truth or element of our faith. Maybe he is inviting us to practice living out the words, love your neighbor and enemy. Maybe that could look like praying or meeting with a coworker that you haven't quite gotten along with yet. Maybe it could look like stopping to connect with a person who's been experiencing homelessness that you pass frequently at the same spot. Maybe it could be calling someone who you think might be affected by the shooting last night or someone who's just devastated by the news and to share in God's broken heart in that situation. Maybe God is challenging you to practice reflecting his heart of generosity and humility. And could that look like anonymously leaving a note with some grocery or gas money for someone you know is struggling with finances? Could putting into practice Jesus' reminder that you have a Father who loves you simply look like memorizing and meditating the passage, Matthew 6, 25-24, from the Sermon on the Mount? Maybe you are in a season similar to our friend at Graceful Cafe of believing that you are a burden and are in need of practicing approaching Christ freely and confidently, taking him up on his invitation to come and rest. What could practicing the words of Christ, practicing your faith, look like this week? And as we head into this week, whatever it ends up looking like, we each practice our faith in the context of Christ's perfect love. And as we try out what practicing our faith faith looks like this week, I'd invite us to remember these things. That the grace and mercy of Christ has already covered you. The Holy Spirit is with you to offer wisdom and conviction as you discern. And the love of the Father will not be removed from you. We practice our faith from the context of Christ's perfect love. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy as we learn how to live out your words. We thank you that you do not abandon your children, but that you are with us, guiding us, comforting us. We pray that you would guide each of us this week as we head into different contexts and situations, that we would pay attention to what you're doing in us and around us. 
And we thank you for who you are and that you are present. And in your great and holy name we pray, Lord. Amen. Talia, thank you so much.